You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So, what happens when Hallmark does not dictate your preaching schedule? You talk about death and dying on Mother's Day. That's what happens. <laughs> so, happy Mother's Day. Kids, the word of the day is death, so make sure you're counting that up. There has to be a book somewhere titled, How Not to Grow a Church, and chapter one is, Preach on Death and Dying on Mother's Day. So that's where we are at. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter seven, please. Ecclesiastes, chapter seven. On a positive note, this is going to be unlike any other sermon that will be preached in this country on this Sunday, on Mother's Day. Chapter 7, we're going to read together verses 1 to 4. Is there something I can do to get rid of that humming sound? Or is that just my ears ringing again? Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we pray that you would give to us a serious attitude this morning as we talk about these things. We pray that you would fix our hearts and minds on the reality of our mortality and that we would learn from that the lessons that we ought to learn. Keep us mindful of this great truth that you, our God, are forever. Your praise endures forever. And we are children of dust, feeble and frail. Fix our attention upon that truth, we pray, and that you would do a work in our hearts. Help us to understand your word. Help us to see clearly what Solomon is trying to teach us here, that we may learn the lessons from this wise man. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Our culture seems to have something of a love-hate relationship with the subject of death. We live in this irony, almost a schizophrenia, where we live in a culture that is characterized by death and seems to love death in so many ways. Our culture sings about death. We, We display death on television. We think nothing of singing songs about death or hearing songs about death. Death is everywhere. We have a We have an industry in our own nation that murders 4,000 innocent unborn children each and every year, uh, no, each and every day in our nation. And uh, the videos that were released even a year ago about this time did nothing to slow that industry down whatsoever. Uh, We do this, we don't care about it. Death is everywhere and it's uh, it's in front of our eyes constantly. That's not how it used to be. It used to be that death was something uh, viewed as something serious and we had something of a biblical perspective as a culture about death, but that is no more. And yet at the same time, though we, we sing about it and we live in a culture that is characterized by its love of death, and, and by the way, that is something that happens in any culture that rejects divine wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon uh, writes, uh, he's describing there the, the wisdom that, well, the wisdom that wisdom offers or what wisdom says. And in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 36, it says, wisdom says, but he who sins against me injures himself and all those who hate me love death. So the further, the further a person or you could say a home or a culture 
a nation, the further that gets from a love of divine wisdom and an implementation and a living according to divine wisdom, the more that culture will love death. Those who hate God love death because those are the alternatives. God is the God of life. And those who hate Him love death. And so we have a culture now that has turned its back on God, doesn't want anything to do with Him. It is a Romans 1 culture, a Romans 1 nation. So we've fallen in love with death. And yet, at the same time, we have this, though our culture loves death, and celebrates it, almost glories in it in a perverse way, we don't like to talk about death when it pertains to us, right? So we come up with all of these euphemisms for death. Just do a Google search for euphemisms for death. There are hundreds of them that are in our culture. We say that somebody has kicked the bucket, they've passed on, they went to a better place, they went to be with Jesus, they bought the farm, they bit the dust, they departed, they're taking a dirt nap, they're no longer counted in the census. There are all these euphemistic ways of describing death in our, in our culture. Almost as if we, if, if we admit that somebody has died or that they are dead, it's almost as if we have to, in the same breath, admit that that's what's going to happen to us as well. As if every recognition of death is a reminder to us of our own impending death. And so death for us is kind of like the strange cousin that only shows up at the holidays the weird cousin Eddie, he shows up at the holidays, but the rest of the year, the family really doesn't talk about him, um, doesn't really want to recognize him, doesn't really think about him, and then he'll show up, so we kind of keep him at arm's length a little bit. You know the relative I'm talking about, right? Every family has one or two, or ten. And he, and he shows up, and we talk about him just enough until he leaves, and then our minds are somewhere else, so we don't want to bring that into our minds, we don't want to put it in front of our face. And so we, we deny death or we sort of run from death. And there was a Pulitzer Prize winning book written by Dr. Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. And in it, he writes this, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man, close quote. And what he's saying is death is this great motivator it motivates us to be busy about denying death. As if we can run from it, as if we can deny it, as if we can ignore it, and that ignoring of it and running from it can go on forever. The mainspring of human activity. It's just this, this busy running away from death. If you've been to a funeral that I have done, you've probably told, heard me tell a story. It was a, an old legend about a merchant in Baghdad. And the merchant in Baghdad had a servant. And he sent his servant down into the marketplace to buy and sell some goods. And while the servant was there, he ran into death. And he came running back to his master. And he said to his master, when I was, he was, he was just shaken, white, the blood had rushed from his face, and he was all shook up. And the master inquired what had gone on. The servant said, well, today when I was down in the marketplace, I bumped into death. And death made this startling gesture toward me. So he said, I, I fear that, that she's going to come after me. So if you would, can I borrow a horse and I will get on that horse and I will ride away to the city of Samar and I will stay the night there. So the, the merchant allowed his servant to do that, gave his servant the horse and the, horse, the servant got on the horse and rode off quickly to the city of Samar. And later that afternoon, the merchant went down into the city of Baghdad, into the marketplace and searched around for death and finally saw death standing there in the marketplace and walked up and asked death, look, today, earlier today, my servant was here in the marketplace and you made toward him a threatening gesture. What was that all about? And death said, that was not a threatening gesture. I was surprised to see your servant today in the marketplace because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. <laughs> we can deny it. You can run away from it. But we're all going to have to face it, aren't we? And so only a fool, according to Solomon, would run away from death, try to avoid death, and try to keep it at arm's length. 
Wisdom says that we embrace the reality of our own mortality and come to grips with it early in life so that we might order our affairs correctly and live our lives in a way that honors God, that we are not afraid of death and that we have our affairs in order. And we're not talking about just earthly affairs, having a will, etc., but that we live our lives in a way that we are ready to die. In fact, only when we are ready to die, I believe, can we truly, truly live for the glory of God. We have that iron, we have that taken away. We have that dealt with. Once we are ready to die, then we can live for Christ. So we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we are looking at just these first four verses of the passage today, and the subject here is death. And we've read them already through once, so we're just going to work our way through the passage. Look at, And I want you to notice something. This, this whole passage is in a proverbial form, so you notice that the, the structure of it is a little bit different. It kind of reads like something out of the book of Proverbs. In fact, you'll notice the first phrase, the first part of verse 1, reads as if it comes right out of the book of Proverbs. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And so there is this proverbial structure as in the opening chapter or opening verses of chapter 7, Solomon is giving to us this this load of wisdom. And some people have tried to find a theme or a subject that kind of runs through all 14 verses, and I don't think that there's any way of successfully doing that because there seems to be no theme or subject that ties them all together. The one thing that does tie all of these together is not a theme or a subject, but a comparison that Solomon has made as he uses the term better than. In fact, you'll see it twice in verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And this better than comparison works its way through all 14 of these verses at the beginning of chapter 7, as Solomon is comparing one thing with another. And so 10 times in this passage, he uses this idea of comparison. Sometimes he uses the phrase better than. Other times, like in verse 11 and verse 12, he speaks of something being an advantage. Look at verse 11. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So twice he uses the word advantage to still communicate this idea that something is better than, has an advantage over something else. So if there's anything that ties all of this together, it's just the better than comparison. Solomon in these passages describes all kinds of different subjects. He speaks of life and death, laughter and sadness, wisdom and folly, wise men and fools, oppression and bribes, mourning, pleasure, patience, pride, anger, money, adversity, and prosperity. How do you tie all those various subjects together in any kind of a coherent theme? You really can't, because Solomon's point is not to do that. His point is to answer the question that he asked in chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what is good for a man during the few years of his life on this earth? That is the question. Who knows what is good? What is an advantage? What is the best? What is better than? Does anybody know what it is, how it is good to live in this vain world that he has described for six full chapters? Anybody can tell me what the advantage is? There is one who can tell us what the advantage is, and it's God. And he does so here by giving us his wisdom. And so then Solomon is answering that question. Who knows what is good? Here's what is good. This is better than that. This is better than that. This is better than that. This has an advantage over the other thing. These are the things that are good, and these are the things that are better. That is what he is describing in the passage. And that kind of keeps with his theme of trying to show us how it is that we are to live in this sin-cursed fallen world that is marked by vanity and emptiness and futility and usefulness, uselessness under the sun. So that is what he is going after. Now, let's work our way through the passage, beginning at verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, what does it mean that a good name is better than a good ointment? What does a name have to do with ointment? How is a good name better than ointment? 
In those days, and once when Solomon talks about a good ointment, he is describing a sweet-smelling or perfumed oil. In those days, it, the perfumes and sweet-smelling things were a lot less common than they are to us today. Now today, we put scents in everything that we do. Right? We put them on little tree-shaped things that we hang from the mirror in our car to make our car smell nice, and we burn oils and waxes and candles all over our house that create these scents. We put scent in our laundry soap and our shampoo and in our soap and in our shaving cream and in our aftershave so that we constantly smell. We always constantly smell. Well, back there in Solomon's day, they also constantly smelled. <laughs> but it wasn't like we constantly smell. It was something entirely different. So they would use ointments in all kinds of areas of their life to overcome odors. They would anoint bodies with oil uh, when they buried them because that oil would help sort of nullify the, the putrid scent of the decaying flesh. They used oils to cover their bad breath and their body odor and all kinds of scents that are very offensive. And, but back then, it wasn't as common or as easy as it is uh, for us to get something that is scented pleasantly. Back then, an ointment that smelled good, that was of good quality, was very expensive. Those things were rare. It was, an, 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 for many people, an unaffordable luxury to have those type of scents. So it was something of value. A good ointment is something of value. That It is for the rich. It is a luxury that the wealthy enjoy. Now keep that in your mind. Now, a good name is better than a good oil. You think oil is valuable? A good name is better than that. And that proverb, uh, that sentence sounds like something you find in the book of Proverbs because Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. A good name is to be desired above great wealth, above silver and gold and even costly sweet-smelling oils which are very valuable and luxurious. A good name is better. Now, in a Hebrew context, the idea of a name was not just something you tagged your kid with when they were born. It's something that may have come down from grandpa or grandma or an uncle or maybe not the crazy cousin we mentioned earlier. It was, uh, just, it was more than just a designation of, of keeping kids separate. It was, a name was intended to communicate the character of something. It was intended to be reflective of what that person actually was. And so a, a good name is a name or a reputation that you get because you have acted and behaved in such a way that you have, you have added glory to that designation that you have been given. A good reputation, a good fame is better than wealth and silver and gold. It is better than a costly ointment. So a name is something that reflected what somebody was. It was a, a character. And that's why Proverbs, that's why Proverbs places value upon one's name or reputation. And it speaks of the name of the righteous going on forever and the name of the wicked being quickly forgotten. It, it makes that designation because the emphasis of Proverbs is not just on what we do, but it is on who we are reflected in what we do. And so that we give we live in such a way that we are filled with, that we, that we live with integrity and honesty and straightforwardness and uprightness of character and, and of heart so that we may honor God and lavish praise upon the name that He has given to us. It's not just so that we have other people say nice things about us at our eulogy when we finally die. That's not the point of it. It is to have a reputation that is, reflects the character of a wise person who lives according to God's standards for God's glory. That's the value of a name. So Solomon says, a good name is better than a good ointment. Now there's something of a wordplay going on between name and ointment, and it doesn't come out in the English translation, but it is a wordplay that is present in the Hebrew. The word that's translated name and the word that's translated ointment or oil in, in Hebrew, they sound very similar. They're spelled similarly. They're almost the same word. 
the word for name is S-E-M, Sem. And the word for ointment or oil is Semen, S-E-M-E-N. Sem, Semen. Do you hear that? How they're similar, they're spelled similarly, they sound similarly. So when Solomon is, when this proverb is structured in such a way that it rings in our ears, it would ring in the Hebrew ear, it doesn't ring in our ear. Probably the best way to capture this in the English language would be to say that a good name is better than good nard. Nard being a word for oil, like spike nard. A good name is better than nard. Or fame is better than perfume. It would kind of capture sort of the idea and the, the ring of it in our ears. Then Solomon says at the end, or the second half of verse 1, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What? You say, this is more encouragement from the book of Ecclesiastes. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What does that have to do? How does that tie into a good name is better than perfume? The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. What is the connection between name and perfume and birth and death? Now, there have been some things that have been suggested as to what this connection is. Some have suggested that there is a connection between the idea of death and ointment or oil. Because when you think of an oil being used, as I mentioned earlier, to, to anoint the body for burial, to over, uh, sort of overpower that stench of decaying, decaying flesh, some people would connect oil and death there. Other people would connect the idea of your name with your death. In other words, that when you die, your name, whatever you have made of it, has been pretty much fixed. Right? Once, once, if you, a good name or a bad name, whichever one it is, whatever reputation you have earned and deserved, when you die, it is fixed. And there's no going back. There's no rewriting it. It is established. And your name is what you make between the day of your birth and the day of your death. I think that the, the connection here is much more structural than it is really in terms of substance. That what Solomon is doing is he is using something that we recognize. A good name is better than oil or an ointment. That there is value in that. And then he is, he is likening that to something else. The day of your birth, de death is better than the day of your birth. So he is, he is taking something that we acknowledge, this is better than that, just as this is better than that, so the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. And we are to make that connection that, that one is more valuable than the other. Now why then would he say that the day of our death is better than the day of our birth? Some people suggest that what Solomon is doing here is he's, this is just another expression of his negativism, his cynicism, that Solomon is just simply saying, look, when it finally comes time for you to die and to leave this earth, to be thrown in a hole in the ground, that's better than that miserable day you got brought into this earth. Count it all joy when you finally die and the suffering is over, the vanity is over, the emptiness is over. I'm looking forward to just dying and getting out of here. His cynicism, his negativism. Other people suggest that what Solomon is describing here is something more positive, and I, and I think that he's describing something more positive. It's not just his expression of negativism. What is it that typically characterizes the day of our birth? With rare exception, it is rejoicing, celebration, anticipation, that sort of that sense of fulfillment, the excitement, the festivity, the gladness, and the happiness of a mother and a father and, and the family members that are there. There is this celebratory, festive type of an atmosphere when the child is born and we congratulate one another and it's, it's happy and it's good. What is it that characterizes the day of our death? It is sadness, sobriety, and seriousness. It, it is not the festive, with rare exception, it's not the festive, excited, celebratory attitude or atmosphere that characterizes the day of our birth. And so what Solomon is doing is, he's doing the same thing he does through the rest of the passage. Look in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning, that's the day of death, 
than it is to go to the house of feasting, because that's the end of every man, the living takes it to heart. Sorrow, that is what's characterized with the day of our death, is better than laughter, which would characterize the day of our birth. Verse 4, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. So all he is doing is he is talking about not necessarily the day itself. He's not saying it's better to die than to be born. He is saying what we learn from people's death by attending the house of mourning is better than what we learn by going to a party. In other words, we learn more wisdom from one funeral than we will from a thousand birthday parties. You get that? We learn more wisdom from one funeral than you will learn from a thousand birthday parties. So that makes the day of our death, the day of somebody's death, better than the day of their living or their birth because of the attitude that accompanies that, and we can glean some wisdom from that day of death. So that's the connection with verse 1. So the psalmist says in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. House of feasting would be a house where they are putting on a celebration or a feast or a festival or a carnival of some sorts, a big celebration, a party. It is better than to go to the house of mourning. What is the house of mourning? In those days, they didn't have funerals in funeral homes. That's something that's kind of unique to our culture and our time. Back then, they didn't have funeral homes, and you didn't have funeral services in churches or special buildings or in the synagogue or the temple. You know where you had your funeral service? You know where you mourned the dead? In your house. Grandma died. People came in. That was the viewing. There she is, lying in the bed. And then you did all of your mourning and all of your preparation and and the sober thinking, and all of that was done in the house that was characterized by mourning. And so Solomon, in in our context, it would be better to go to a funeral home than to a birthday party. That's the better than comparison. Because there is something to be learned at a funeral home that we cannot learn at a birthday party. So it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. Now Solomon is not suggesting that all mourning is good and all celebration is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's not suggesting that there's never an appropriate time to be cheerful and happy and celebratory. And he's not suggesting that there is that all mourning and all sadness is always good. Because that wouldn't be in keeping with everything that Solomon has written in other locations. For instance, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. Proverbs 15, 15, All the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. Proverbs 17, 22, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. He's not suggesting that, that all, all mourning is good and that all celebration or enjoyment is bad. See, that wouldn't even fit with what Solomon said in the last chapter. Do you remember what he talked about in the last chapter? What did we just get done describing? The gift of enjoyment. And so what has Solomon said in chapters 5 and 6? He has said it is a good thing to enjoy the things that God has given to you, to enjoy them with a glad and grateful heart. There's a blessing there and an enjoyment there that should be, should be enjoyed appropriately, right? But better than that is the sober moments surrounding a funeral. Because even the person who celebrates the good gifts of God can celebrate the good gifts of God without God in view. So what Solomon is describing here is not not all celebration, but frivolous celebration, the mindless celebration. What he has advocated for us in in Ecclesiastes is a God-centered enjoyment of the gifts that God has given to us for the glory of God and enjoying those gifts. And then he turns right around and says, but we learn something from the house of pain. We learn something from the house of mourning that enjoying the good gifts of God can never, can never gain you. When we sober up, and I don't mean in an alcoholic sense, but when we sober up and get serious 
about the issues of eternity, it is when we are face-to-face in a funeral. I could go and preach the gospel in a bar or at a birthday party or some sort of a celebration, and it will not have nearly as much effect as if when I stand in a funeral home in front of 200 people and present to them the gospel with a casket sitting right next to me. There is something about a funeral home, the house of mourning, that wakens us up, it slaps us across the face, and it makes us realize, I am mortal, and I better deal with eternal issues. There's a note of sobriety that is struck there. I have everybody's rapt attention when I am talking about death, and their loved one, carcass, is lying in a box right next to me. Uh, I remember the very first time that I started thinking about issues of the soul and of death as a child. I was very, very young. I don't know how young I was, but my great-grandmother had died. And I remember standing at her funeral, looking at the casket. I was standing, I don't remember who it was that was sitting next to me. I was young. Somebody was sitting next to me, and I was standing at the end of the row, and I was looking right at the casket, and it was no longer than 12 feet away from me. And I remember thinking to myself, I remember all of these thoughts in my head from that day. I remember thinking to myself, my grandmother is in there. But my grandmother is not in there. What is in that box? And what are they going to do with that box? Mom said they're going to put that box in the ground. So grandma is going into the ground. Or is grandma going into the ground? What happens if grandma comes back? It didn't seem right that we put grandma in a box and put her in the ground. That didn't seem right. And yet I, I was young enough to realize there was something standing there. I remember thinking this. There was something about me that is not going to go into that box at the, end of, at the end of my life. And someday, it struck me, someday I'm going to be in a box. And my mom is going to be in a box. And my uncles and my aunts and my cousins are all going to be in a box. We're all going to lay down in this box and then be put in the ground. And what will I do on that day? And from that moment forward, I was utterly terrified of death and the uncertainty that came with death. Now, I believe looking back on it now, in the providence of God, that was part of what he used to to draw me to himself because I could never, I was haunted by that. That's why I remember it to this day. I was haunted by that realization that my body's going to be put in a box and yet what is going to happen to the real me? Because I knew there was a part of me, obviously, that was not my body. I'm more than just meat from head to toe. There's something else that exists here. What is going to become of that thing? And that haunted me for, for a decade probably until I trusted Christ for salvation. That realization. I never asked those questions at a family reunion, a birthday party, a school dance, a fair, a carnival. I never asked those questions when I went to those things. Therefore, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? Because it is there that we are confronted with eternal verities and eternal realities. It is there that we realize that we are mortal and it is there at the funeral that everything gets put into perspective. And so Solomon says in verse 2, because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. There is no, I don't think that there is a single funeral that I have done that I have not stood by the graveside and quoted this verse. And I will say to them, with the casket to my right, I will say to them, this is the end of every man. Take it to heart. Learn from it. This is your end. Someday you are going to get your own pair of pine pajamas and you are going to lay down in this and they're going to put you in a hole. So pay attention and listen up and learn the lesson that we are eternal beings and we will die. And we ought to consider this strongly. That's always my plea at a funeral. This is the end of every man. The living takes it to heart. The wise man learns the lessons from that that we ought to learn. It is the fool 
who immediately leaves the funeral home and goes back to his drinking and carousing, drowning his pain and pursuing his pleasure and ignoring the reality of death. That is a foolish path. Don't be on that. Be on the wise path and learn the lessons from death that you ought to learn. So Solomon says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for when the face is sad, a heart may be happy. And again, Solomon is not saying that all sorrow is good and that all laughter is bad. He is saying in terms of of dealing with these eternal realities and learning to live and walk as we should, that sorrow or weeping then has a better, more salutary effect upon the soul than laughter does. Because when we weep, we deal with these issues, we come face to face with them, and that is better for us than it is to constantly be pursuing a life of pleasure. I've done funerals where as soon as we walk out of the funeral home, there are family members who are out in the parking lot cracking open a beer and drinking and going on and trying to joke about things. Listen, when you're standing at a funeral, we're not laughing. No, I've never seen anybody stand around the hole in the ground while they're lowering grandma or grandpa or mom and dad into that hole, sitting there cracking jokes and laughing. All of a sudden, funerals have a way of making us very serious about things. And that is the way it should be. And so, though Solomon has commended that we enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us, let us not pursue that at the expense of dealing with the serious issues that a funeral confronts us with. So verse 4, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. The foolish man says, I want to get the realization of death out of my mind, out of my thinking, out of my existence and purview as quickly as I can, so I can go back to ignoring its reality. The wise man says, I want to stand in the house of mourning as long as I can. Because in the house of mourning, I learn more than I do in the house of feasting. In the house of mourning, I learn a tremendous amount about my possessions, about my family, about my marriage, about my life, about my fame and my reputation. I learn a tremendous amount about, about pleasures and, and, and what really counts and about eternity. The house of mourning can teach me that. The house of feasting and pleasure, it only makes me to ignore those things. And we do that to the detriment of our own soul. So what do we do with this then? Solomon has told us that it is better to, to go here, that we learn some lessons. So what are the lessons that we should learn? Let me suggest a couple of them. First, we have to recognize that for those of us who are Christians, who have trusted in Jesus Christ and been born again, we have been regenerated, our view of death is much different than the unbeliever's view of death. We have to recognize that. And I, we don't fear death. Now, I, I was terrified of the idea of death and the uncertainty that came with it. But Hebrews chapter 2 says that Christ came into this world and defeated the devil. He defeated him who had the power of death, which we were slaves to our entire lives. Hebrews chapter 2, I think it's verse 14. Right? So, as a, as a believer, I am no longer a slave to my fear of death. Now, that doesn't mean that I entirely look forward to death or that I'm, I'm anxious for it to come. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean that. There is some sort of fear. There is some sort of appropriate, uh, I'm searching for the right word, anxiety or angst or uncertainty. Let's just use that regarding death. I mean, for all of us, when we die, that's our first time, right? We only get one shot at this. And we've never, it's not like when I die, this is my third or my fourth time passing through the veil. We, we get one shot. We've never done it before, so we don't know what it's like. We don't know if we're going to die slowly or quickly. We don't know if we're going to die in, in great pain or in great comfort. We don't know if, if it's, we don't know what it's going to be like. I might be asleep, die in my sleep. That's how I want to die, in my sleep. Just go to bed. Wake up in eternity. Or have the Lord rapture me. I want one of those two options. I don't want it to be long and drawn out and miserable. Though, I will say, and I didn't plan on saying this, but I'll give you this as a little bit of a bonus. 
Yeah. <laughs> Anything to make it just a little bit easier on us, right? I read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography. No, sorry, uh, Ian Murray's biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a two-volume work. It's about this thick. And it is, if you're interested in Martin Lloyd-Jones, it is worth its weight in gold. At the end of that, Ian Murray chronicles how Lloyd-Jones died. He died from throat cancer. He got treated. He went across the ocean to get treated and came back. And, and he struggled with this for a period of time. And finally, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones just said, enough is enough. I'm ready. I've run my race. I've finished my course. It's time to go and receive the crown that is laid up for me. And that was his decision. And so he stopped having treatment. And his death was very slow and very painful. And as Ian Murray relates how it is that Martin Lloyd-Jones died, it is worth reading those pages. Because I got to the end of it and I said to myself, I want to die slowly and painfully and I want it to be miserable. Because of the way that Lloyd-Jones handled it and how he did so for the glory of God, giving testimony to his hope in the resurrection in Jesus Christ. I thought, this obviously, dying in a miserable fashion would be better than just going quickly. And then I thought, no, I just would like to go quickly. <laughs> So we recognize that there is a contrast between how a believer views death and how an unbeliever views death. And as a Christian, we understand that death does, is not the loss of, of everything for us. It's the gain of everything. We lose nothing. We lose nothing. And we gain everything when we die. That's the reality. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 68 says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That is the Christian's attitude. For me to live as Christ and to die is infinite gain. That is the equation that I have to have in my mind at all times. To die is infinite gain. I lose nothing and I gain everything. Thomas Boston said of a believer's death, he said, in the day of his birth he was born to die, but in the day of his death he dies to live. That's the Christian's perspective on death. In the day of my birth, this is why the day of my death as a believer is better than the day of my birth. In the day of my birth, I was born to die. In the day of my death, I die to live. Isn't that a wonderful thing that is true of believers because of what Christ has done? That is what we have. Douglas O'Donnell says death is not the exit to extinction, but the entrance to eternity. So first we recognize that there is a difference between how a Christian views death and responds to death and how an unbeliever views death and responds to death. For the unbeliever... Death is not, is not something that they should welcome. If you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, you, you do not step into the glory of Christ and, and the company of the elect angels and the elect saints and stand there and sing the praises of Christ your Redeemer. As an unbeliever, that is not what greets you at death. What greets you is being, being, being punished by a holy God whose justice you have spurned, whose love you have hated, whose, whose reign you have resisted, whose, whose majesty you have refused to bow before, whose law you have violated, and he is justly and rightly angry with you, justly so, and you face his fury and his wrath. That is what an unbeliever faces, but not for the believer. For a believer, I, I gain everything. Unbelievers lose everything, and there is no middle ground they are as polar opposite as they can possibly be, and there is no middle ground between those two things. You lose everything as an unbeliever. You gain everything as a believer. That is the difference. And so what else should you take from this? You should follow Solomon's advice. Learn from death what you ought to learn from it. Because it is coming upon you much more quickly than you care to, you care to admit, than any of us cares to admit. Charles Spurgeon said this. This is a more lengthy quote, but it is worth worth it. 
Death, he says, is much nearer to us than we think. To those of you who have passed 50, 60, or 70 years of age, it must of necessity be very near. To others of us who are in the prime of life, it is not far off, for I suppose we are all conscious that time flies more swiftly with us now than it ever did. The years of our youth seem to have been twice as long as the years are now that we are men. It was but yesterday that the buds began to swell and burst, and now the leaves are beginning to fall, and soon we shall be expecting to see old winter taking up his accustomed place. The years whirl along so fast that we cannot see the months which, as it were, make the spokes of the wheel. The whole thing travels so swiftly that the axle thereof grows hot with speed. We are flying as on some mighty eagle's wings, swiftly on towards eternity. Let us then talk about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do. And we have soon to do it, so let us talk and think something about it. Close quote. That's good wisdom. That's what Solomon is saying in the first four verses of chapter 7. Philip Graham Riken in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this, The present day unbeliever is crazy because he finds himself born into a world of endless wonder, having no notion how he got here, a world in which he eats, sleeps, works, grows old, gets sick, and dies, takes his comfort and ease, plays along with the game, watches TV, drinks his drink, laughs for all the world as if his prostate were not growing cancerous, his arteries turning to chalk, his brain cells dying by the millions as if the worms were not going to have him in no time at all. Close quote. Right? This is the man who runs from death oblivious to the reality that he is running right to the city of Samara, where he has an inalterable, destined appointment with death. So what ought we to do? Recognize that as Christians, we view death differently than we did as unbelievers. Learn the lesson that Solomon is imploring us to learn. And third, ask the question, am I ready to die? Do I know, do you know, where you will spend eternity? Because you are more than meat from head to toe. There is an immaterial part of you that will live on forever and ever and ever. So are you ready to die? If you're an unbeliever and you've never trusted Christ for salvation, you are not ready to die. You are not ready. For you will face His wrath because you have violated His law. You have broken His commandments. You have spurned His goodness. You have spit in the face of an omnipotent king who has lavished you with benefits. You've broken His law and you deserve His wrath as an unbeliever. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to die in our stead, to be buried and to rise again, and then to offer us salvation on His terms, repentance and faith. That means we turn from our sin and we believe upon the sacrifice that God has given His Son in our stead. 1 Peter 2 says, He Himself bore our sin in His own body on the tree so that we might live to righteousness. God made Him who knew no sin, who was perfect, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the great exchange. All of my sin imputed to Him. All of His righteousness given to me on the basis of repentance and faith. That is the goodness of God. He has done this in Christ and now God commands all men everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed and He has furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. That's Acts chapter 17 verse 30. So there is a judgment to come and God offers you this day clemency, forgiveness of your sins. This is the new birth. By repentance and faith, you can have your sins forgiven. You can have your conscience cleansed. You can know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ so that you can face death and be ready for death. As an unbeliever, you say, oh, no, I, I'm faced death. I've dealt with death. I've got all my affairs in order. 
I have made my will. I've got my trust ready to go. I've set all of my earthly things in line. I'm ready to die. No, you're not. All you have done is heap up your little piles of dust and organize them in a neat fashion for the winds of time to blow away. That's all you've done. You haven't actually prepared to death for death unless you have bowed the knee in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And His promise to you is the one who comes to Him, He will not cast out. He will instead raise you up at the last day. That is the believer's hope after this life and after death. And that is the lesson that we ought to learn from Solomon. Let us bow our heads. Father, it is my desire, our desire, that there might be nobody here this morning who walks away from here unchanged by the goodness of the gospel and unsanctified by the truth. There are people in this congregation who are part of this church who do not know salvation through Jesus Christ. It is my desire that you would crush their self-righteousness, their self-reliance, their self-dependence, and make them to know the righteousness that Christ offers by repentance and faith in Him. Be glorified this day by drawing sinners to yourself, by sanctifying those who are yours, and by reminding us again of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.